Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll hear from Scientific American editor Davide Castelvecchi, who's in San Francisco at the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union. And CNET's Michelle Thatcher talks about netbooks and tablet PCs. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Davide Castelvecchi. He joined the staff of Scientific American a couple of months ago and made his first road trip this week to the AGU meeting. We spoke the evening of December 18th. Hi, Davide. Good to talk to you. Hi, Steve. Great talking to you. So, first of all, let's talk just for a moment about what is the AGU meeting? What are the kinds of subjects that get talked about at a American Geophysical Union conference? It is, broadly speaking, earth sciences, I would say, but uh, this means a lot of different things. Um, it ranges from uh, water management to space science. There were, there were talks about um, other planets. Um, so it's earth sciences in a very uh, broad sense. I I know we we spoke a little earlier today, and I know that one of the things that you learned about was some some interesting ideas about uh, actually what wiped out the dinosaurs. Yes, that's um, it's actually not a new theory, um, but it's a theory that uh, is trying to make a comeback. Um, there are researchers who claim that the um, the generally accepted explanation for what wiped out the dinosaurs, which is the impact of a giant asteroid um, is not enough or or is not the right answer. And that instead it was some gigantic volcanic eruptions that caused the demise of the dinosaurs and of uh, a lot of other species that were not dinosaurs. So these are uh, these volcanic eruptions, we've discussed them in Scientific American magazine before, the, the so-called Deccan Traps. But there's a uh, there's a new wrinkle to what the particular researchers that you heard are proposing. The idea is that the eruptions spewed out not only lava but also they created a um, sort of kind of like a nuclear winter, which is an effect that we observe in volcanic eruptions uh, nowadays. And the new the, the new twist is that these Deccan uh, eruptions happened over a shorter time span than previously thought, and close to the time when the dinosaurs actually disappeared. The new findings came from looking at the magnetism of the rocks of the lava as it solidified, which kind of froze into place the uh, picture of the magnetic field, of, of the direction of the magnetic field of the Earth uh, when the, the eruptions Happened, and because they they because the magnetic fields vary very slowly, and and um, you, you can tell how how long the eruptions lasted because you see that you see that this this image of the magnetic field doesn't vary much during the during during the eruption. And so the the older ideas about why it it wouldn't be the volcanic eruptions were were based on the idea that, well, they were happening over hundreds of thousands of years and you needed more of an immediate kind of, uh, forgive the, forgive the word impact because, you know, I'm not talking about the, the asteroid impact in, in this, in this sense. But, uh, these guys think that these, 
volcanic eruptions were spewing out unbelievable amounts of material in in like just a few years, right? Yes, and we're talking about um you said you said right, it's an unbelievable amount. We're talking about millions of cubic kilometers. And just to give you an idea of what a cubic of a million cubic kilometers is, imagine taking the surface area of Texas and covering with a mile's worth of lava. That's about a million cubic kilometers of lava. And that would have happened over a period of um, a few years to a few decades, according well, to these scientists. Well, they do everything bigger in Texas, so exactly. <laughs> so, is that what, what's the general kind of reaction to their hypothesis? I mean, this is a fascinating area because you know, forty years ago, the asteroid idea about the dinosaurs was completely unheard of. And then, when it was proposed, it was scoffed at, and then it quickly became the accepted uh, idea about what happened, and now we're starting to get some pushback about that that looks interesting, at least. Yes. Um, reportedly, one of the proponents of the of the asteroid impact um, explanation is very skeptical, and uh, I think that we'll, we'll see how this plays out. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, because... Um, there's probably still more research to be done. Is the uh, is that proponent Alvarez? Yes, the the it was a father and son couple, and the the son um, is still alive and and was quoted as saying that they he didn't believe it. He, he doesn't buy the right eruption. I, I I always get confused. I forget. There's Walter and Luis. I forget which one is the uh, the father and which one's the son. But the the son wrote a book called. T-Rex and the Crater of Doom, and uh, I highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in this field or who's interested in just reading a book by a researcher about their research. I think it's the most uh, straightforward uh, and entertaining example of, of a book by a scientist about their own research that I've ever read. So I highly recommend it. It's by Alvarez, T-Rex in the Crater of Doom. So anyway, uh, so you got that interesting stuff going on there about what happened 65 million years ago, give or take a couple of weeks. And uh, tell me about, I know you, you heard a, uh, a Lamont Dougherty uh, Earth Observatory speaker. Uh, what's, what's he all about and who is he? Yes, Wallace Broker is from Columbia University's uh, Lamont Dougherty Earth Observatory. And he has traveled around the U.S. and other countries to look at lakes and to study the geological history of lakes. And the reason why he's doing this is to indirectly predict what global warming will do to uh, rainfall. The, the prevailing um, wisdom, so to speak, is that with global warming, Dry areas will get drier, and rainy areas will get rainier, and there will be more uh, disastrous uh, floods and, and events like those. And what he what he has found, however, from from uh, from traveling to um, mostly to deserts and uh, and visiting what are now dry lakes or or very small lakes <laughs> in in large basins, is that the truth may be a little bit more complicated, and in fact, 
uh, there may have been situations in which it went the other way. It went the other way around, and warmer periods uh, corresponded to rainier, to to dry areas becoming less dry, and to um, wet areas becoming drier. And so that's just another wrinkle in the whole global warming modeling scenario. Yes, it seems that the that the more researchers look into the local effects or regional effects of global warming, the more complicated the picture gets. It's not simply you're, you're you're turning up the thermostat everywhere, but there will be a lot of uh, local variations on on the theme. Which is uh, it may make it more difficult to get the idea across to the general public if if individual areas are going in different directions. But you know if that's the reality, that's the reality. That is definitely one of the general themes that people have been sounding is, is that there will be winners and losers. Um, and so it, it might be difficult ethically and politically to um, take substantial action because some, peop- some, some people might be, might be hesitant to forego what would be good outcomes for them of global warming. Right. If you own a golf course in Vermont, you're pro-global global warming. If you own a ski resort in Vermont, maybe not so much. So uh, the the Orbiting Carbon Observatory, what's that? That is a very interesting mission now um, due to launch next year. Um, it's a NASA satellite that will orbit the planet um, pole to pole. And so it will scan. Imagine, imagine the planet is rotating, and the 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 satellite goes around and traces a meridian on the Earth and measures the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere as it do, as it does so. And at each orbit, the satellite will fly over a different meridian because the Earth, in the meantime, has rotated. And so, over a period of sixteen days it will map the concentration of CO2 over the entire planet. With re- reasonably high resolution, too. Yes, exactly. And that, will, that, that means that we won't just have data on the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere on average, but we'll have very local uh, maps of CO2, and we'll be able to know where the CO2 is coming from, where it, where, it, where it is going. Right, so you'll be able to see very quickly effects of, for example, deforestation. This is, this is a possibility, and it, it, it will be interesting to see if, you know, like, like they say, a picture says more than, more than a thousand words. If the effects of, the, of something like deforestation become visually obvious, it will be interesting to see if this will put more pressure on uh, countries to limit deforestation, for example. And you, I know you went to a talk. It's very interesting. This the the idea that the entire atmosphere is kind of the, the whole planet is kind of breathing. The atmosphere is is expanding and contracting on a regular basis. Yes, this was known before. It was known that as the sun itself rotates, the um, Earth is exposed to uh, different amounts of ultraviolet rays, which heat up the outer atmosphere and just by just by thermal expansion 
or contraction when, when it becomes cooler, the atmosphere undergoes this breathing um, every, 29, every 27 days, which is the time it takes for the sun to do one full turn. But these researchers have found strange breathing periods of fewer than 27 days, and in particular, for example, they've seen the atmosphere growing at intervals of nine days, so inflating and deflating about three times a month. Eventually, they've, they've been able to attribute this to also to uh, variations in the sun's effects, uh, coming from the fact that the corona of the sun, which is the sun's outer atmosphere, is not perfectly uniform, and there are features in it that form and persist sometimes for, for a while. And what the researcher um, compared this to is, imagine you have three searchlights that rotate, and they are at 120, degree, 120 degrees from each other. So uh, for every full turn of the searchlights, you get three flashes, essentially. Right, right. And so, for, so for example, if, if the corona has three holes, as he called them, three, um, uh, three gaps, essentially, and three hot areas, solar wind will change. Uh, the amount of solar wind that reaches Earth will change depending on whether the sun is showing us, is, is pointing at us, you know, pointing um, one of the searchlights at us or not. Right, and the solar wind is the, these uh, highly energetic ionized particles that are bombarding the atmosphere. Yes, and so the solar wind will go up and down, the, the amount of solar wind will go up and down instead of once every 27 days. In that case, it would go up and down three times over that over that same period. And is there any kind of effect that that the atmosphere's changing shape because of this has on on us or on things we do? It actually has an effect on satellites because low orbit satellites are not completely out of the atmosphere. Here we're talking about what happens to the atmosphere at a high at an altitude of about 400 kilometers, and a lot of a lot of satellites are not. Much, don't don't fly much higher than that. Right. So they still are slowed down by a little bit of drag from this very thin layer of outer atmosphere, and the amount of slowing down depends on whether the atmosphere is swollen or deflated at that time. Right, right. And you really need those satellites to be exactly where you think they are in order for them to function properly. Exactly. Very interesting stuff. You're going to be writing about some of the things you find out at this meeting? I'm hoping to have all of this written up, yes. Well, this was great. Thanks a lot, Davide. Have a good trip. Thank you. It was great talking. For more on the AGU meetings, just go to agu.org. I was at a conference of the National Association of Science Writers a few weeks back and attended a talk by Michelle Thatcher from CNET about new products of interest to writers. But these products are really of interest to anyone listening to podcasts, too. So I got some more info from her after her talk. Michelle, for people who haven't seen them or heard of them, what are tablet PCs? 
Tablet PCs are mobile computers that let you uh, write directly on screen, so you can take handwritten notes. They have a, they ship with a special stylus, so you can take handwritten notes, draw diagrams, um, write formulas, and uh, often actually um, use handwriting recognition software to tra- uh, to turn that into typed text. And what are what are the pros and cons? Um, well, I would say the biggest con is that they're a little bit expensive. Um, compared to a similarly equipped laptop. Uh, the pro is that you can, as I said before, take handwritten notes, which is huge if you're a, if you're a scribbler or if you don't like the distracting sound of typing in meetings. Um, and if you get a what we call a convertible tablet, it's essentially a laptop with a screen that twists around and folds over the keyboard. So you can kind of have the best of both worlds with that. But again, it's going to be a little bit more expensive than just the standard laptop version. Michelle, tell tell me about netbooks. Uh, I've seen I've seen them around a little bit, but it looks like they're becoming a little bit more popular, and there are a lot of pros to them and some cons. So first of all, what is a netbook? Well, netbook is just the general term for this new class of notebooks that are a lot smaller than traditional notebooks. They're far more portable. They're usually between 2.5 and 3 pounds. Um, and they're also extremely inexpensive, generally less than $500. So when we say netbook, that's those are the two kind of key factors that we're, we're talking about. Key factors being the, the cheapness and the lightness. Because... I mean, I remember back in 1998, I bought a Sony Vio that was less than three pounds, but back then it cost about 1700 bucks. Yeah, and it, it's actually really shocking to me because when I first started reviewing laptops, I mean, this was the size of the ultra portable that everybody coveted, and they were easily more than $2,000. So now we're talking about the same form factor um, in a sub $500 package. Which is pretty amazing, but they are limited. You might... Uh, might be dissatisfied with it if you're trying to use it as your laptop. You, it, it's really a, a, a kind of a secondary device. Yes, absolutely. The uh, the smaller screen is a lot harder to work on full time. I mean, these devices have anywhere from seven to ten inch diagonal screens, and except on the top end of that, it's just going to be way too small for for a full day's worth of work. And of course, because it is smaller, it has a far more compact keyboard. Usually we're talking about 75 to 85% of the size of a full-size keyboard. And so um, if you have large hands or just don't like the idea of adjusting how you type, then um, then you're probably not going to like the netbook. And these devices do not have a disk drive? As a rule, they don't, no. Um, I think incorporating a disk drive into that small of a form factor just is going to cost too much. But they do have USB ports, so you could put an external disk drive on if you wanted to. Yeah, they do. Most of them actually have two or three USB ports, and they also have... You know, VGA out so you can connect it to a monitor. So basically, why would I want one of these things? You'd use it as a secondary computer. So you'd want it if you have a desktop or if you have a larger laptop that you use for most of your main computing. But then um, you just want something to take with you when you go to conferences or if you go to the coffee shop and want to keep up with your email or maybe just um, take some quick notes, just short, brief stints of typing. Um, then a netbook might fit your needs as a secondary system. And these things also have built-in uh, Wi-Fi, so I, if I'm at the Starbucks, I can surf the web? Absolutely, yeah. That's and, and still under 500 bucks with all that? Yes, almost all. I mean, 
Some some of them are creeping up there. <laughs> I know Asus has a a model that's you know got a ten inch screen and is is topping the five fifty mark. So um, at that point, you can almost buy a, a cheap larger laptop. Right, but if I really want something that I can just throw in my backpack and I won't even know it's there until I want to use it, this this might be a good thing to use. I think so. Yeah. So. What's what do I not know is out there that's going to be coming out in the next year or two? I mean, obviously, if I want to go really small, I can just get a BlackBerry to do some of these kinds of things. But what is out there that might change my whole attitude about, wow, that's something i got to have because I can do so many different things on it and it's so easy to use? I don't know that there are any strong wow products on the horizons. There are little segments of the market that are going to amaze certain people. <laughs> so, for example, um, we're seeing a lot more laptops in the 16 and 18-inch screen size, which is uh, really gives you the proper 16 to 9 uh, aspect ratio for displaying high-definition content. Um, we're seeing... Uh, well, coming out in the future, we expect in 2009, this is kind of inside of the case uh, development, we're expecting some more hybrid graphics solutions so that you can switch between um, a, a graphics card that borrows from the system RAM in order to render the graphics versus a graphics card that has its own RAM. So you can choose between battery life preservation with the former and um, some uh, higher performance and better video display values with the latter. Cool. So tell us the entire presentation that I just sat through that you gave is going to be up on the web by the time uh, this interview is published, and people would be able to go view that where? You can go to our gadget blog, which is crave.cnet.com, and uh, click on the laptops category, and you'll find an article in there called uh, Best Laptops for Writers, and that should be up quite soon. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a company is marketing an add-on to turn your iPod into a breathalyzer. Story two, researchers have found the world's oldest spider web. Story three, there's a conspicuous lack of acorns in the east this year. And story four, Alaska produced 20% of U.S. energy last year. Time's up. Story one is true. You can get an accessory that makes your iPod a breathalyzer. The iDrunk, nah, it's really called the iBreath, also doubles as an FM transmitter to send your favorite tunes to the radio of the car that you are not driving in your condition. For more, go to davidsteel.com. Story two is true. The spider web was found preserved in amber on an English beach two years ago. It's 140 million years old, about 10 million years older than the previous record web. And story three is true. The East Coast is suffering from an acorn drought. Not to worry, however, last year's acorn crop was huge, and there's often a lean year following a bumper crop because the trees are basically worn out. Do be on the lookout, though, for hungry and aggressive squirrels. All of which means that story four about Alaska producing 20% of U.S. energy last year is totally bogus. Here's John McCain during the campaign on Alaskan Governor Sarah Palin's energy expertise. 
energy. She knows more about energy than uh, probably anyone else in the United States of America. She represent, is a governor of the state that 20% of America's energy supply comes from there. Actually, Alaska was responsible for 14% of all the oil produced in the U.S. last year, but its share of the total energy produced in the country was 3.5%. That's according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Of the energy consumed in the U.S., Alaska accounted for 2.4%. McCain got the 20% figure from Palin. Oddly, President-elect Obama chose not to nominate Palin for energy secretary despite McCain's claims of her knowledge. Instead, this week he went with Stephen Chu, director of the Berkeley National Lab and a Nobel laureate in physics. While he may not be the energy expert that Palin is, Chu probably isn't under the impression that a jewel is a diamond. An erg is when you have a big hankering to do something, and a BTU is great on toast with mayo. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Visit Siam.com for all the latest science news, videos, and slideshows. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 